This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. I'm joined today by two associates from our real estate disputes team, Sam Lear and Lauren Spark. Following on from a training session they recently delivered about notices given under leases and other agreements, I've asked them to come up with five top traps when it comes to notices. And these principles can apply when it comes to all sorts of notices, break notices, notices to reinstate premises, section 146s, 54 Act notices, all manner of property notices. Uh, So hopefully this will be uh, of great interest to a number of you. Um, So over to you, Sam and Lauren, who wants to go first with your top trap? I'll go first, Emma. Uh, And that allows me to pick the easiest one of them all, which is material errors within notices. I mean, it's pretty basic, but if you make errors in notices, that will inevitably lead to some complications. Sort of in, in our experience, I think we commonly see this manifest itself in all types of different scenarios. It could be the wrong party that is listed in the notice or the wrong property. Um, and, and sometimes that could be quite inadvertent. It can be simply because they hadn't checked company's house to make sure that the company entity to whom the notice is to be served um, still has the same name. It could be a different property address to that that's contained at the land registry. Um, so it's really important to check particularly every factual element within notices to make sure that all the information is up to date, particularly in respect to the part- parties and properties. Um, I mean, there is a case that I think Lauren is going to come on to, um, which is a nervous property litigator's favourite, which is Manai. Um, and that can sometimes rescue you in certain circumstances, but only if notwithstanding the material error within the notice, it was still sufficiently clear and unambiguous as to what was intended. But it's never a good idea to be in the boat of having to rely on Manai. Um, Litigation is ultimately a very expensive process. And if you're arguing over whether a notice is valid, no one is going to thank you for incurring tens of thousands of pounds in legal fees and litigating over that point when you could have spent a little bit more time checking the information at the outset. And that's the point, isn't it? You don't really want to be having the argument. You, yeah, I remember one that you and I had in once, and it was uh, we were almost laughing because it was almost like an exam question. Do you remember? And it was how many? <laughs> it's like spot the error. There were so <laughs> so many things that had gone wrong. I think they'd got the name of the party wrong, the date of the lease wrong. I mean, it was it was catalogue of errors. And it, yeah, I mean, you might be able to save them, but who who wants to be fighting about it really? Well, absolutely. I've had one today, in fact, a section 146 notice where they didn't include a very important part of the notice that has to be provided. And it's just allowed me to write a letter in response to say, well, your notice is invalid. Um, And I'm sure their client won't be particularly happy to receive that letter. No, I suspect not. I suspect not. Um, Well, that's certainly a a key one. Get the content right. Um, What else have you got for us? So I would also say that poor record keeping is a really easy win in terms of avoiding 
pitfalls with notices. So this is key in terms of both forward looking and also recording what has happened in the past. So in terms of looking forward, it is key to diarise all key deadlines for the service of notices. We are obsessed with diary reminders in our team. So reminders months ahead, weeks ahead, days ahead of a deadline. And that needs to be Kept in mind, as you need to think about when the notice will be deemed served, which is something that Sam will come on to later. But again, these reminders just mean that by the time you get to serving a notice, you're giving yourselves plenty of time and it just removes that stress in terms of forward looking. Um, in terms of keeping records of what has happened, it's incredibly useful to have a file of key communications and notices that have been sent, along with records of how notices were served. So I think because of the way Royal Mail are operating currently and the challenges the Postal Service is facing, we're seeing more and more that parties are asking for proof of how a notice was served, notwithstanding that the notice has reached the recipient, they want to make sure that it was served in the way that it is required to have been. So this is included from our end, providing tracking references for notices sent by recorded delivery, providing photographs of notices entering the postal system, which is essentially um, a photo of our trainee at the post box posting the notice um, which is a favorite in our team so really keeping a catalogue of the actions you've taken to make sure that notice has been validly served and a final point to make in terms of record keeping is in relation to in-person meetings and telephone conversations so key to flag although verbal communication is often insufficient to constitute formal notice if there have been key conversations with counterparts regarding matters it is absolutely key to have clear attendance notes of any and all conversations because if there is a dispute regarding a notice either the substance of it the form of it the intention behind it having clear records is only ever going to help and it will never hinder a position and so as lawyers we just urge all of our clients and those we work with to have records of absolutely everything so that would be my second trap to avoid at all costs yeah and it's that thing as well about um you know you have the conversation as you say maybe a reasonably informal conversation whatever, but it, you know follow up with an email confirm in writing actually what's been discussed or what's been agreed and then at least you've got documentary evidence because that's what the courts like to see they do love a document Absolutely. And they don't love a he said, she said. So if we can avoid <laughs> that with just a one follow up email clarifying yeah. what's been said, then that does make everyone's life a lot yeah. easier. I'm loving this image now of the trainee selfie, though, by the post box. <laughs> my my work phone is littered with photos across post boxes across London. I probably I should do a bingo board of how many I've hit. <laughs> you could do one of those collages. <laughs> Okay, that's a good one, though. That's a good top tip um, or top trap. What else have we got? So another one is when parties don't adhere to strict requirements. So there's obviously crossover with Sam here in terms of material errors, but essentially the theme is always take a huge amount of care. So in terms of adhering to the strict requirements, so firstly, it's key to consider the form of notice required, and this might be under statute or under the lease or under the lease and statute. So it's key to be alive to both of those possible sources. So there are certain statutory notices which have prescribed forms. 
So on the residential side, these are things like Section 8 notices, Section 21 notices, and also on the commercial side, you have 1954 Act notices, which also have a prescribed form. There may also be prescribed form under the lease itself. So this was captured perfectly in the case that Sam mentioned of Manai Investment Co Limited and Eagle Star Life Assurance Co Limited. And in that case, Lord Hoffman um, infamously said, if the clause had said that the notice had to be on blue paper, it would have been no good serving a notice on pink paper. However clear it might have been that the tenant wanted to terminate the lease. So it really is as clear as if the lease says do X, make sure you do X. However, as Sam also alluded to, it was ultimately held in that case, which was a dispute regarding the break date specified in the notice, that even where notices contained errors, they were to be regarded as valid where they were sufficiently clear and unambiguous, that they would leave a reasonable recipient in no reasonable doubt over how they were intended to operate. So as Sam said, a lot of people look to Manai as kind of a saving grace if there is ever a defect in a notice. That being said, I should quickly add that although the Manai case is often seen that way, it is by no means a guaranteed safety net. And so when preparing notices and dealing with service, ideally Manai shouldn't need to exist. And so utmost caution is key at all times. So, in terms of strict requirements, thinking about where, so if a lease requires service at a particular building, even if you know for a fact that the company or individual you're serving has no connection whatsoever to that building anymore, or even if the tenant who is being served has actually assigned the lease, and so the building is completely unconnected, still serve at that building. So a well-timed reasonable example of this is we were serving a break notice on um, under lease at a particular building, and we attended the building and it had been demolished. So we proceeded to take the break notice to the hoarding. So that is a key example of doing exactly what the lease says. And then a final point that I wanted to touch on in terms of adherence to strict requirements um, is how you're serving the notice. So given the gravity of most notices, break notices are so key. Um, for example, we like to go nuclear when we're serving notices. So we serve by hand, by recorded delivery and by first class post. They tend to be the three methods that we use. However, again, and there's a clear theme here, it's key to consult the lease provisions. As recently, I was serving notices under a lease that expressly said that by hand service would not constitute valid service. And given that by hand is usually such a common fail safe way of serving notices, that would have been such an easy trap to have fallen into because you think you're doing the right thing, attending the premises, there's nothing that can go wrong, you're taking control. But actually, it wouldn't have constituted valid service under the lease. So it really is a case of going through the lease, the clause relating to the notice you're serving, the notice provisions, the addresses of the parties. Um, it really requires a thorough review. That's unusual, though, isn't it? I've never seen that. Have you seen that, Sam? I've never seen that. No, I've never seen that because I think generally case law kind of supports the view that if you have a better version of a method of service, then that's you know what is prescribed and that's fine um that is really unusual another one i came across recently is where it was stated within the lease that all notices had to be served not only by the party or and or their legal representatives but also by their surveyor and again that's another one that's also very easy to to miss um 
so it's really important as Lauren says to check everything really really carefully yeah because you do get these funny things and I mean there's there's numerous cases where sort of said you know you have to serve the agent as well or you know those sorts of things and as you say you can fall down so easily just by ignoring those not checking those provisions and then you think you've done the right thing by hand notice to the landlord but actually if the lease says you've got to do it as you say Lauren if it says not by hand doesn't work then that that won't save you and if it if it requires service on a managing agent as well then until you do that then it's not valid so uh, yeah they're good they're good lessons so what we got next what's our next are we on to number four i think aren't we so number four informality um our, our loyal listeners will sort of you see that there's quite a bit of overlap between a lot of these points um which only gives to show how sort of common these errors and traps can be but informality is a particularly dangerous one so we often come to the party as litigators at the end or coming towards the end of a relationship that could possibly have been ongoing for years and decades often with the same individuals and over that time party a and party b surveyor you know might even be good friends and they, they go to the pub and chat every now and again and they will think well hang on that person they won't mind sort of accepting service by me just having a telephone conversation with him or even a simple email um the answer is no for the reasons that sort of lauren describes in nearly all cases particularly for statutory notices and notices required under certain contractual documentation it's imperative that you follow the notice provisions within those documents or the statutory provisions um so often that means that email won't constitute good service, which seems a bit balmy in 2023, particularly where fax, for instance, might be considered good service. And I'm very well acquainted with our fax machine in the office even now. Um, but we, I think Lauren and Emma, you both see it all the time where clients come to you perhaps a little bit too late saying, well, hang on. Um, I said this email to the other party, surely that's that's good enough. And the answer is invariably no. And so then you're either starting again or in a worst case scenario, you might even be timed out from being able to serve the notice that you wanted to, to serve. Um, and this is particularly true for statutory notices. So Lauren has already touched upon the likes of Section 21 notices, Section 8 notices, 1954 Act notices. Often they are a very prescribed form. So it's imperative that you use form 6a for section 21 notice rather than just a freehand letter or or word or word version um so it goes back to lauren's point just following the provisions to the letter and really checking what you're doing yeah you're quite right and it, it can be a problem can't it when as you say people have built up relationships over a number of years and it's all become a little bit informal which is you know which is where you want to be really but it's always bearing in mind that actually there is a contract it is a legal thing and you do need to check it and follow it yeah <laughs> it's a very fair and well-made point uh so what's our five of five trap then so the final one is leaving notices to the last minute which is sort of the, the <laughs> really? do people do that sam do they Oh, it's only human nature, but it, it, sort, of, it sort of couples <laughs> with uh lauren's point about sort of Know, record keeping and how how important that is um you know it is human nature that we often leave things to a deadline 
and certainly when I was at university my mantra was I do my very best work when I leave things to the last minute but in the cases of uh, serving notices this can be rather perilous um, and it certainly um, causes a few sleepless nights if you are leaving things to the last minute so typically with any notice we would allow a bit of a grace period so I see this most commonly in the form of section 21 notices which is you must provide not less than two months notice to terminate a and a short, short old tenancy in sort of a residential context. Um, we often see notices that were served on, say, the 1st of January, with the deadline of the, or the expiry date of the, uh, the 1st of March. Um, but the problem is when you allow the period for service, that could often mean that the deemed date of service is the following day, or even you know, two days, or even later, and therefore you're then under that two month notice period and therefore the notice will become invalid. So I think as a general rule, when we're serving in the UK, we would allow at least seven days um, as a bit of a buffer period for, for service and possibly a, a little bit longer. Royal Mail aren't as efficient as they used to be. Um, and again, it goes back to Lauren's point about really checking all the references that come back for recorded delivery, special delivery, because I've had probably, no, at least a handful of examples of such deliveries having not been delivered at all. Um, so you want to allow yourself a bit of time to correct anything that hasn't gone uh, precisely right. And if you're serving overseas, you know, often you know, property is owned by companies in all sorts of wonderful jurisdictions like the BVI or the Cayman Islands. And I think there was one example where we had to serve in Bermuda or something during a storm, I seem to remember. Yeah, it was Bermuda or BVI, I can't remember where it was, but yeah, yeah, it was um, Emma Priest doing a break notice, yeah, and it had just been hit by a hurricane. <laughs> so you, you just have to give yourself a bit of time to sort of yes. cater for those types of unusual eventualities, um, yes. and they're not uncommon, and it, yeah, it, it just goes to the point that I know a lot of these traps, of course, you know, they're to be avoided. And sometimes commercial reality is that decisions aren't made until the last minute, but it's just where possible, if you can avoid leaving things to the last minute, then it's definitely worth doing so. And that comes back to Lauren's point you made earlier about checking the lease clause, what is required, because that, as you say, people often sort of assume, oh, well, it's property in the UK, you know, I'll be serving in the UK. And they forget that actually if the landlord entity or tenant entity is based abroad, it's, that's, that's not going to be where you need to serve. And that can add, as you say, a whole level of complication. I mean, uh, yeah, my, my, my favourite one of talk about leave it to the last minute was getting a call. I think it was 10 to 6 in the evening from someone who hadn't served the break notice and it needed to be served that day um and uh yeah so there we were drafting obviously said break notice you know thanking our lucky stars that we could serve up the road um thank goodness because if it had been jersey i think it would have caused a real issue and uh yeah and there i was wandering a car park at whatever time of night to try and serve this notice because the reception was closed and apparently that's where they were taking deliveries and I remember thinking all oh, the glamour the glamour of being a lawyer in a city firm serving on break notice in a car park late at night 
But it does have serious ramifications, particularly break notices, because often they're, they're served to terminate a lease early, which could save your clients millions of pounds. Millions. Certain, yeah. yeah. So getting it wrong or or sort of not doing it precisely right can have really quite serious yeah. issues. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be doing it in a rush because if something does go wrong, I mean, supposing the reception hadn't been helpful as they were and I didn't know where to leave it I mean it would you know you'd have still done what you said Lauren really you'd have taped it probably to the window or whatever but you don't want to be in that position you don't want to be in the position of having to argue whether taping it to the window is sufficient because the doors weren't open or whatever it's just not where you want to, it's not where you want to be is it um yeah oh the joys of notices well thank you both notices are a, a key part of managing property on a day-to-day basis so I think that's been a very helpful review of the law in this area we've got much more information about different types of notices uh, on the surveyors refresher area of our website so our uh, loyal listeners I like that description Sam um, I think that's justified after <laughs> the years we've been recording and delivering potty bears our loyal listeners um, should please do contact us if you would like access to that area I'd be very happy to do that there's lots of helpful guidance in that whole area of our website so uh, just getting contact with any of us and we'll um we'll arrange that access uh, in the meantime i hope you're all keeping well and thank you for joining us this is a charles russell speechley's podcast